Thank you, Peter and, and Kathy, and, and for what you're doing. And I think it comes at a perfect time as we are in Holy Week, starting today. And it's called Holy Week because it's the last week of the life of Jesus while he was on earth. It's also called Passion Week. And to be able to tell people, whether you are in France or whether you are in Irvine, that Jesus Christ died for you. And he died for you because he saw the need within your heart. I think so many times we, we look at what's happening in, in our world and, and we are overwhelmed by the suffering, we're overwhelmed by the evil. Um, but we forget that even the people who do evil have a heart and that they have a soul. And something happened in their lives that was never touched with good to stay. And they need that. And so as, as Peter and, and as Kathy and their family go to a country um, that is very small in God's kingdom at this time, there's such a great need. And even us here in the United States, our percentages aren't that great either, that the people who should know about Jesus can know about Jesus through us, through you, and through me. And so I do encourage you that you would talk to Peter and, and to Kathy after service and see how you can support them. But also as you listen to today's message, just think about for yourself, um, what do you believe that Jesus has done for you? Um, what do you believe about Jesus? What is it that, that brought you here today? Why, why would you be here today? It's no accident that you're here today. Uh, I believe that God wanted each one of us here today for a very specific purpose, and that is that our minds would be changed to be thinking about Jesus. I can control your mind right now. Lunch. <laughs> right? So now you're thinking about lunch, okay? What am I going to eat for lunch? Yellow. You just thought about something yellow. The sun. Sermon. Oh, but you just got depressed. <laughs> but I can control your mind by what I say. Today, as we look at God's word, it is to control our minds, to live the way that God wants us to live. I once heard a man um, share his testimony, and he had become a very on-fire Christian, like Eric. And uh, he had been living a very wild lifestyle before he became a Christian. And he wanted to go, and he wanted to see all of his friends come to know Jesus. So he went there, and he would witness to them, and they thought he was absolutely crazy. And then they said to him, you're just brainwashed. And he said, you know what? You're right. Who's washing your brain? Somebody is washing our brains all the time, whether it is the world or our teachers or our parents or God and his word. Which one do you think is the better one? Which one do you think is the best one? Well, today we're going to look at that. and We're going to see what it meant for Jesus to have a mind to go into Holy Week. We're going to look at Philippians chapter 2. And if you would open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2 in the New Testament, we're going to look at verses 1 and 2 to begin. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And so here we begin to understand 
What was on Jesus' mind? What was Jesus thinking about? As Pastor Jerry said, when the people saw Jesus coming into Jerusalem, they yelled, Hosanna, Hosanna. And it means, save us, Lord, save us, Lord. But it's not just a prayer, it's also a proclamation. But the people fully didn't understand what they were proclaiming. And Jesus was going to have to do something so that proclamation could become true. And so as we look at Philippians chapter 2, we're going to see what was Jesus doing? What was on his mind as he went into Palm Sunday, as he went into Jerusalem? And then how can that mind be part of your mind? And how can that mind be part of my mind? I'll read verses 1 and 2 in Philippians chapter 2. It says, therefore... If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind. The first thing that we see here is that Paul wants us to be encouraged He's giving us an example of Jesus. When we are united with Jesus, we are going to become encouraged. And God wants us to be an encourager. He wants us to be people who build other people up. The word encouragement means to come alongside somebody. Not just to tell them to do well, but to literally come along their side to help them to do something. To to give them words of exhortation that will help them to know what the right thing is to do. To counsel them and to love them. to, To show it. You know, we need this in our world today. We need it so very, very much. We need to be encouraged more than we need to have criticism given to us. And, and you've probably heard that there's certain statistics about when you hear a bad word or you hear a word of discouragement, how many more words you need of encouragement to overcome that one word of discouragement. And that's been part of studies um, throughout um, uh, uh, history, and people have tried to figure out how many times do we need to encourage somebody. Well, well Harvard, um, the Harvard Business School, in their business review, they, ha- they, li- they put up a study that was done. And it was study was called the ideal praise to criticism ratio. The ideal praise to criticism ratio. And what they found out was that there was a, a large company that they did studies on. They divided them into multiple groups. And then they found out by just taking track of what was said, which groups performed the best. Well, obviously, the group that performed the best was the one that had the highest level of praise to criticism ratio. And that ratio was 5.6 to 1. In other words, almost six times more words of encouragement to discouragement. So, you know, if I were to ask the kids, do you think your parents encourage you six times more than they discourage you? How many of you would jump up and say amen? <laughs> one. We have one. All right. All right. We have one. Okay. Um, moms and dads, you know, how many times do your, parent, your kids, like, encourage you and say, thank you? Do, do they say thank you six times more than they say give me? Um, moms and dad, raise your hands. None. All right, so we're all guilty, all right? So we can't just put it on the moms and dads. But what we need is six times more encouragement than, than criticism. The, the group that did sort of in the middle, the average group, was 1.9 to 1, or 2 to 1, two times more words of encouragement than, than criticism. And the group that did the worst, as you would under, you'd expect, is the one that got the most criticism. But they got three times more criticism 
than encouragement. 0.36 to 1. Well, you know, we kind of know that, right? We, I think we all know that already. But something that we, we need to do is not just know it, but practice it. And this isn't something that's, that's just for business. This is something that God wants us to do. Paul says, therefore, if you have any encouragement, where does that encouragement come from? It comes from being a Christian. So if you're a Christian, you are supposed to be an encourager. William Barclay, um, a Bible commentator, says something that's in your outline. So if you have an outline, you can see the quote there, and I'll read it. And he says, one of the highest of human duties is the duty of encouragement. It is easy to laugh at men's ideals. It is easy to pour cold water on their enthusiasm. It is easy to discourage others. The world is full of discouragers. We have a Christian duty to encourage one another. Many a time, a word of praise or thanks or appreciation or cheer has kept a man on his feet. Blessed is the man who speaks such a word. Paul was such a man because Jesus was such a God that gave us the words of encouragement. And so God wants us to be encouragers. How do we do that? Well, first of all, we have to accept encouragement. We have to have something so we can give it. And Paul says, this is what you get from Jesus. Accept this encouragement from Jesus. The first is the comfort of his love. The comfort of his love. Wherever you are right now, Jesus loves you more than anyone else in all the world. Jesus loves you more than all the people of the world united. Jesus loves you the way you are. You don't have to change. You don't have to become better. He loves you the way you are. He died for you just as we are. He died for us because he cares for us and he comes close to us. And the the way that this letter was written and these words were written, it's as if Jesus is coming close and whispering cheer into our ears, saying, I love you. I want to be there for you. And then Paul says, not only do we have his love, but we have his presence in his spirit. We have his fellowship. We have this fellowship that's a commonality that we share in his spirit, that Jesus gives us his spirit so that we can share in this comfort. It's within us. It's something we can feel. It's something we can experience within us. So much so that the next word is tenderness. And it's a word that could be talking about the bowels that we have within us. It's our inward affection. Again, it's something you feel. I mean, if you've ever had a stomach ache, if you've ever had an intestinal disease, you feel great pain. And here's what the word is saying to us is that we are going to feel great tenderness within ourselves from the love of God and from the love of Jesus. And then the fourth thing we are to accept is his compassion. And the word means mercy, that God wants us to have compassion from him into our own hearts. God wants us to receive this encouragement. And so for you today, God wants to encourage you. And he says, I love you. I want to spend time with you. I want you to know that I'm tenderly affectioned towards you. And I want you to know that I'll give you mercy. No matter what you've done, no matter who you are, I will forgive you and I love you. And when we receive that and we accept it, now we give it. 
It's so important that as an encourager, we don't just accept encouragement. But actually, the way that we truly experience encouragement is not just receiving it by giving it to other people. There in verse 2, it says, Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, and being one in spirit and one in mind. We need to encourage each other. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25 says, Let us encourage one another, and all the more as we see the day approaching. God wants us to encourage each other more and more because of the days that we live in. And the day that is approaching is the day that we would have to stand before God. It's the second coming of Jesus. It's the day of our own judgment. And the writer of Hebrews is telling us, you know what, in the really tough days, you know what you need in really tough days? You need encouragement, don't you? That's what you need. And what kind of days do we live in now? We live in really tough days. We live in a very scary time and we need to encourage each other more and more. We need to build a community of Christ thinkers. We are people who are to think just like Jesus. And so when Paul says be like-minded, he's saying exercise your mind. Exercise your mind and think like Jesus. So have the same love for other people. Think about loving them, not hurting them. Think about being one in fellowship with them, not being separate from them, having one spirit with them. And think about doing the right things with them. Being of one mind also means of one purpose, that God would have us to serve together, to work together. We're in a time of transition in our church. And as many of you know, Pastor Ben and his wife, Jerry, are, are going to be taking a break from ministry, as Ben feels called, to take this break, to, to reignite his connection with God and, and to continue. And there's nothing wrong. There's, there's, there's no problem. There's, nothing's happened bad. It's just that Ben feels it's time for him to take a break so he can spend more time with the Lord. And it's a, it's a scary time for them. And it's a scary time for us, too, as a church. But what do we need? We need to come together. We need to think. We need to be like-minded. And as we work with our youth, and, and we love you guys so much, and we, we may not show it, and we may not act like it all the time, but we really do, just like parents. Your parents really love you, and sometimes like, it doesn't look like it. Um, but we do, right? And, and we need to work together like-mindedly to love on them and to serve them and to help them as parents and as adults and as servants. And then you also know that Pastor Jerry and, and Priscilla are going to be transitioning and, and moving towards less time for Pastor Jerry as he goes to three-quarter time towards the end of this year and then half time next year. But he'll still be here. But what's important is that he's going to be ramping down. That means that his responsibilities are going to have to be on other people. And, and how's that going to happen? How, how are we going to be able to do that? Well, there's a lot more people, so we could do the opposite of what Kathy did for us, and instead of having one person stand up, we could have one person sit down and everybody else stand up. And that's the number of people we have to serve here. So just Solomon is the lazy one in not serving. (laughs) (laughs) We'll serve Saul. But isn't that really what it is? I mean, do we just expect... Ben to do all the work? Just one person serving 50 youth? Do we expect Pastor Jerry to do all the work? Just one person leading worship, serving all 100 of us or more? But we've got to come together. 
We need to encourage each other. Look in the box for application. It says, encourage as many people as you can think of this week or as you come across this week. And do so with love and the words of Jesus. Pray for them. Better yet, pray with them. Send them a note, an email, a text. Call them or get together with them. Let them know you care about them. To be an encourager, you've got to be with them. You've got to accept it from God, and then you've got to give it. The th- second thing that Paul wants us to do that Jesus did as he was going into Jerusalem, as he was going to be going towards the cross, as he was going towards Easter, was that he was unselfish. And God wants us to be unselfish. And Paul is saying that in this way, I exhort you to live this way. I exhort you to live in this manner. To encourage means to say, you can do it. This is what we can do together. But to exhort means, and this is what we do. This is what we do. And so the first thing is do nothing. I kind of like that. And so Paul says, do nothing. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Do, do nothing that is meant just for yourself. Do nothing without thinking about how what you're about to do will bless somebody else. Do nothing with a sense that, you know, it's all about me, this vain conceit. Do, do nothing in that way. God wants us to know, though, that there is the danger of selfish ambition. There is the danger of vain conceit. So though there is a ratio, yeah, the best ratio of, of compliments to criticism is 5.6 to 1, but the reality is we also have to remember there is a 1. There still is a 1, and we still need criticism. We still need correction. And so Paul is saying that we must remember that that correction is we must remember to do nothing out of selfish ambition. He's exhorting us, but he's not condemning us. He's challenging us to do nothing that hurts ourselves when we hurt other people. Because that's what always happens. When you hurt somebody else, you're always hurting yourself. You may not know it, you may not feel it, but it always happens. So you may hurt somebody else on the outside, but what's happening is you're hurting yourself on the inside. And God wants us to think like Jesus, where it was the opposite way. Is that no matter how much you hurt me, I'm going to love on you. No matter what you do to me, I'm not going to do it back to you. Even though you nail me to the cross, I'm not going to curse. Even though you spit on me, I'm not going to lie. Even though you hurt me, I'm not going to try to do anything to get back at you. I would do nothing out of selfish ambition. I would do nothing just for myself. But I will do everything. I will do everything in this other way. I will do everything with the same love. I will do everything with humility. I will do everything not looking at my own interests, but I will be looking at the interests of other people. Humility means that I recognize that there is that one in me. Yeah, it's six to one, but there is that one in me. And I do struggle with being selfish, as we all. I do struggle with only thinking about myself. 
But I, when I look at myself and I scrutinize myself and I realize that my own motives suck at times, then I am not going to be so quick to judge down and look down on you because I realize that I have so many faults myself. So how can I judge you for your faults? How can I be so hard on you when in reality is that when I look in the mirror, I screw up probably more than you do. And so Paul wants us to be a person who is humble because we recognize our needs, but not to stay stuck on just thinking about like that we mess up, but to realize that now what we need to do is to look for other ways to bless other people, not to look for what they do wrong, but to look for what we can do right for them. The word look is the word scopos. We get the word scope from it, and it means to spy out. It means to look for ways to do good for other people, to do everything I can in humility to try to bless other people, to think about their interests, to think about what is good for them, to care about them, to value them. If you look at the the application box, the question there is, who are people that you tend to devalue but whom you can value above yourself? Who are people you tend to devalue, but people you can now value more than yourselves? And what can you do to show your care about them and for them? I want to be an exhorter is the heart of a person who is like Jesus. The third thing that Paul would want us to know about how to live like Jesus and to do what Jesus did on Holy Week is to learn to be an example of what Jesus does. And so the third thing is I will be an example. And this time I highlighted the word be because we see that in these verses in 5 through 8, we see the word being three different times. So I'm going to read it and you can follow along. We're in Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 8. But notice the word being because we are human beings. And this is where our example of what our being really is supposed to be about is found. Verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross. Our being is to be an example to other people. It is who we are as Christian beings, not just human beings, that we display to other people the mindset of Christ by the actions so that they will be blessed. To me, the key words of this message are found at the very beginning of verse 5 where it says, in your relationships with one another, in your relationships with one another, the context of the mindset of Christ, the context of our Christian likeness to Jesus is found in our relationships with one another. Paul is saying, in your relationships with one another, the mindset of Jesus will be shown. 
It is in your relationships with other people that your faith in Jesus will grow. It is by becoming more in relationship and in community with people that we learn who we are. We experience our own struggles, our own selfishness, our own greed, but we work against it in relationship by seeking to be unselfish. We are being an example by being unselfish as Jesus is unselfish. The Bible says that he was God in very nature God. And this word nature can also be translated form. It's it's an outward expression of who he really is. And he is God. And the Bible says that he emptied himself. He did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. And when it says he, empty, he made himself nothing or he, he emptied himself, it means that he set aside the prerogatives of his power to become a, ba- a man just like you and me. He set aside the powers, but he didn't fully give them up. He was still fully God and he's still fully man. He wasn't half man and half God. He was completely God in the flesh. Emmanuel. Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. It is perfect God in the flesh. And he displayed this nature of a servant. He displayed it as he is God. Think about that. God came here to serve us. He, He made himself empty. He emptied himself. And and what that means is he left it all on the cross for us. He emptied himself fully. He held nothing back. I mean, we have that saying when when we talk about sports, is, oh, they left it all on the field or they left it all on the court. Well, Jesus left it all on the cross. He emptied himself. He was unselfish, fully God and fully man. He died for us because he cared about us. And he did this because he is a servant. And when you and I learn how to be a servant, we will hurt. We will be misused. We'll be misunderstood. And and we will be treated badly, just as Jesus was treated badly. This word servant means bond slave. And, And bond slave is someone who was in permanent service for the rest of their lives. Jesus became a servant for you and for me. And as he was going into Jerusalem, he knew what was coming. But he was going to be God's servant. In the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament, you have the passages there in your outline in the New Living Translation version. It's Isaiah chapter 53, verses 3 through 6 and verse 11. And in verse 11, we see that Jesus is being prophesied as God's righteous servant. But as we read these verses, this is what a servant does. This is what our servant in Jesus did for us as he went into Good Friday. Would you read these out loud with me? And we'll read all of them from verse 3 through 6 and then verse 11. Let's read them together. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. 
Yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. This is Holy Week. And I hope that you are involved in some form of Lent devotion. And on the back of your outline, there are still the, the websites there that you can go to to just log in and just start even today on the devotions that are there. But I encourage you that if you aren't using any other devotion to meditate on the ones you just read today, Isaiah 53. And this is what Jesus was doing for us as he went into Holy Week. He was being God's servant, and this is where it would lead him. This is what he would do so that you and I wouldn't have to die on a cross and suffer. And I so encourage you to come on Thursday to Monday Thursday. To, to be able to experience what was happening in that upper room when Jesus was meeting with his disciples on that be- night before Passover, where he was sharing his Passover, where he himself was going to become the Passover lamb, and that he spoke to his disciples, and he gave them what we call the Lord's Supper, and that we would experience this together as a community. That there, there's nothing more enjoyable than experiencing a meal together. There's nothing more powerful than experiencing a meal together when you're doing it with a purpose in mind. And the purpose that Jesus had in mind was to be our servant and to die for us. And we'll experience that together on Thursday. Jesus was obedient. And this is what we are called to be too. To be obedient. The Bible says that Jesus was obedient. He humbled himself. And then he died on the cross. He died on a cross. And we have our cross here for us to see. And in just a few minutes we'll be taking of communion. And we only have one station for communion today. And we're going to ask you to come forward so that you will walk by the cross. And if you want to, you can sit in one of the chairs and meditate during that time. But one is to be, keep being reminded of what Jesus has done for us. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, the Bible says, and you have it there in your outline, but Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When he was hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. For it is written in the scriptures, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Jesus was cursed for you and for me. He bore the curse that happened to Adam and Eve after they had sinned. He bore the curse for everything that you and I have ever done that is wrong. And this ought to humble us. Just as Jesus was humbled, but he humbled himself. He chose to go to the cross. We did not make him. God did not make him. He chose to go to the cross himself. In the same way, we must choose to be humble. In 1 Peter 5, 6, it says, So humble yourselves. We must choose to be humble. 
So humble yourselves under the mighty power of God. And at the right time, he will lift you up in honor. We obey first. We trust God in sacrifice. We bear our cross. We humble ourselves before God and we wait. And as you and I wait, there will be those three days, which might be three weeks, which might be three years, that we wait, but we trust that at the right time, God will lift us up. And we will be an example to others of this type of life that Jesus has. So what attitudes? What attitudes do we need? What attitudes do I need to be more like Jesus? And where am I learning to be a servant who sacrifices for others? Where am I learning to be a servant? Well, the last thing that, that Jesus would have us to know for today and that Paul wanted us to be certain to understand was that we are to bow to the exalted one. We are to bow before God. Someday all people will bow, but Christians bow now. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus, his name, means the Lord saves. And as Lord, he is the sovereign ruler, the rightful owner of everything. And Jesus, the Lord, came down, and he gave himself for you and for me. But after he had done this, God exalted him. And this is the only place in the Bible where the word is actually called super-exalted, where God super-exalted Jesus because of what he had done in coming down to earth, because now he understood everything that man went through in the ways of the flesh, and now he had overcome the flesh. And so he is in heaven as perfect God. He is in heaven having been the savior of the world. And he is super exalted. And someday all people, all people, believers and non-believers, will bow to him and acknowledge that he is God, that he is Lord. But for the believer now, we bow. In Psalm 34, verse 3, the Bible gives us the call for our community here today. Come. Let us tell of the Lord's greatness. Let us exalt his name together. What we do today is not to be meant just for us, but for the world, to share with the world, to give to other people. Next week is Easter. It is the best time to invite your friends to church. It is the time that people actually, they want to know more about Easter. Why? Because everybody wonders what happens after I die. What happens after I die? Easter tells us what happens after we die. And what should happen after we die is to be with God and to be with Jesus because we've believed what happened on the cross. We've taken Jesus into our lives in faith. And so I so encourage you to take the bulletin insert that we have there and to use it to invite a friend to come with you to church next week to invite someone to come and share Easter with you. You can just say something to them like, you know, I was at church this week and, and um, I learned something that I hope would really encourage you. That is that God really loves you. 
And, and I'm wondering if you would like to come to church with me next week to hear more about God's love and, and to understand what, what Easter really is. Do you know what Easter really is? Well, next week we're going to find out. Would you come with me, church, and, and we'll have lunch together too? It'll be a great day. I encourage you to invite your friends to come to church next Sunday so that in our hearts we will bow together before the exalted one. But we're going to bow now. And of course we can bow our knees, we can genuflect, and we can do all the things on the outside without having it mean on the in, anything on the inside. But I want to encourage you to bow on the inside this morning and to bow before God in your heart as you come to take of communion, as you come to take of the bread and, and of the juice. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he, he took bread. And after he had broken it, he offered it to his disciples. And he said, I want you to eat this in remembrance of me. This bread is my body, which is given for you. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've done this many times. And it's easy for it to be a ritual or a habit. But this morning, would you make it an act of worship? When you take it, would you bow in your heart to God? Or even maybe just bow a little as you come up to the cross here as a reminder of who your Savior is and what he's done for you. And after you've taken of the bread, you can come and, and take of the juice. And our Lord has, has given to us his blood. You've cut yourself before. You've bled. You know what it likes, what it's like to hurt. And as you come to the cross, you'll see what it meant for Jesus to give of his blood and to give of, of his body for you and for me. And so as you come and as you take the cup, maybe again, just, just a little bow as a reminder that someday we will all bow together. And this is what Holy Week is about. That Jesus, after he had taken the bread, he took the cup and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And for as often as you eat the bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim my death. You proclaim my death. And so together would you come. There'll be a time now of, of some music. It'll also be fairly quiet. And so I ask you to come in this direction. So you can come across this way. So it'll go in the same direction. It'll take a little time. But let that be a time of worship for you. Heavenly Father, as we get ready to partake of this and of this cup, we pray, Lord, that our faith in you would grow that our love for you would deepen and that what we have in this cup and what we have in this bread is more than a piece of bread and more than just juice, that to us it is the body of Christ and the blood of Christ, the body of Christ given for us and the blood of Christ shed for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus for being our example.
of what it means to live and to love. In your name we pray. Amen. So feel free to come as you...
that, just your voices. And all of you is more than enough for all of me, for every thirst and every need you satisfy. And our Lord gave the bread to his disciples. And he says, this is my body given for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And after he had given them the bread, gave him the cup. And he says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. And as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you remember my death until I come again. Let us remember our Lord's blood. Lord Jesus, we thank you. And we cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us, Lord. And we thank you. We thank you that you came to be to us our Savior, to enter into Jerusalem on that most holy of weeks, to show your passion and your love. Increase our faith, Lord Jesus. Thank you for loving us. We love you. Amen. We're going to continue worshiping the Lord together, and um, we'll do so through giving back to God time. So I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward and uh, be prepared to um, collect the offering. If you filled out the welcome card, you can drop it in the bag as it's going by. And um, also there's bags for the um, communion cups.